good evening everybody hello hello thank you very much for once again coming by to the merge worlds dungeons and dragons story stream which we do every other sunday afternoon um, i always appreciate uh, these nights especially it's an important story to me and it's fun to be able to share this with everyone um, so hello and thank you for coming by to share a bit of your weekend with me um, we'll get started in a few minutes we'll give a couple minutes for everything to kick in and then i will um do a brief recap of what happened last time and we will move forward let's see let me get this in here all right all right so that's up and running excellent well hello hello um so um as always merge worlds uh i'm pretty excited about this evening um there's a good chance that we may reach the end of a chapter this evening. Um, the story itself, in my mind, is broken into chapters and sections. There's um, <laughs> still so much left to go. Um, hello, Mystique. Hey, Enbeast, welcome. Um, so yeah, the, the first chapter in my mind was, of course, the original tale of the Firemoon Brothers themselves. Uh, that was kind of chapter one. Chapter two, was uh, the group of eight heroes uh, questing to find the magical weapons. And that chapter ended in the Flying Citadel in the Valley of Sacrifice. And then this chapter three um, is where the smaller group of heroes is trying to find all the Visanya crystals um, to once again get those annoying weapons uh, back under control. Um, so I have a feeling there's a good chance, depending on how long I ramble, I guess, uh, that we may hit the end of chapter three today. Uh, so I'm pretty excited about that. Um, for those of you, uh, I always like to do a little bit of a brief recap. Um, last episode, uh, we finished off with um, our Indomitable Heroes. Um, we're out questing for more gems, and they went and found a... Um, they got, I think it's where they opened up the realm gates. Uh, that's where they got the key that allows them to go from one realm gate to another, which are, again, um, portals that exist throughout the world at this point that no one knows how, who, or why they were made. They are basically indestructible, made of strange materials. And if you can get a hold of a key, you can use these gates to teleport from one location to another, open up a portal from one location to another. That instantaneously moves you from one location to another. Uh, using this, uh, they were given their key by Zoltan, the gray man, also a demigod who kind of put them on this path to begin with. Uh, thorn in their side, but uh, kind of the guy who keeps it all going. Um, they used their key to go to a swamplands where they found a, uh, I guess you could say flooded, it's be a good word to use it, uh, old castle of a, you know, Arabian style, and inside they fought a, after fighting their way through to the top, they fought themselves a uh, water gin, like a water genie. Uh, upon defeating it, uh, the genie did not grant wishes, but it gave them three pieces of information that they needed, basically answered three questions. One of their questions is, uh, was about Michael, and his status, was he alive, would they see him again? Uh, one question they found out is that there ended up being another, there was one more stone than they were led to believe existed. And they were given kind of directions of where to go to the next stone. So they got a hold of that. And then they 
also got themselves a flying carpet, which I can tell you while DMing the story from this point on, uh, that that really drastically changed how I wrote the story because uh, flying carpet is incredibly convenient to move plot and story along at times, but it's also very inconvenient when you're trying to make challenges that the flying carpet uh, negates. So uh, if you're ever DMing a story and you're going to give out a flying carpet, I warn thee now, a flying carpet can be a bigger thorn in your side than you can expect. <laughs> but it happened. So, um, they followed their instructions through another realm portal, realm gate, and popped up uh, behind a waterfall, at which point they then used their flying carpet to travel a distance, and they found this giant dome made of incredibly hard and yet overwhelmingly uh, sharp uh, briars, big vines with razor blade briars on them, where uh, they met a, a group of elves that are incredibly small who led them through because they had been expecting them. Uh, some sort of a prophecy or prophet in their town was told them that they'd be coming. And then upon arriving, uh, to they led into the uh, town where they, the, their little village inside the briars, where they let them then go inside. They spoke with the uh, wise woman who told them what they were looking for, basically in a door in the back of the room. And they went through that door and found themselves on the deck of a ship. And it was night, and the night sky overwhelmingly clear, black with stars everywhere. And there was a big commotion on the deck of the ship. And they were very confused, because when they turned around, the door that they came through appeared now to be what would normally be the door leading down into the ship. Different, different looking door completely and suddenly before them was standing a large creature with a bulbous head, tentacles for its mouth, if you're familiar with the term of an illithid or mind flare was standing there and spoke to them in their mind uh, basically saying, I don't know how you got on my ship, uh, but <laughs> you fight, basically fight or die and looking up, this giant sphinx-like creature was flying and attacking the ship, and all the people on the ship, which appeared to be humans and dwell, uh, dwarves and uh, elves, mostly humans and elves, a couple dwarves, and then this one thing that looked like a really, almost like a minotaur-type concept, but instead of half uh, bull, it's more half uh, hippopotamus. It's a big hippo head, very, very thick. And they looked, and that's kind of where we left off. They were help defending this ship uh, or end up dying to the creature attacking it, and that's kind of where we left off. The ship itself, they realized, was not only just floating in the you know, floating on water, but floating in the sky. And space is in all directions. They're literally flying through space on a huge ship shaped like a dragon. And that is kind of where we left off. So I'm excited to continue from there. Hello, Teresa. Thank you for coming by. All right. Okay. So... The one last thing I'll mention is the other piece of information that they received from the water gin is that the last stone that they're looking for, the one that they didn't realize existed, even Zoltan, nobody warned them about, uh, was located in a place called Dragonaria. And that even the genie didn't know where it was, only that that's where they needed to go to get the final stone. So, there we have it. Um... Oh, well, I'm glad you made it as well. <laughs> um, so at this point, the stones that they have 
in their possession is the Lifestone, Water, Fire, Earth, and Wind Stones. They have the Death Stone. So life and death and all four of the elements. And now they're going after stone number seven, which they thought was the last one, and they were incorrect. So we will continue there. All right. So Ooh, you're in space in a spaceship shaped like a dragon. Um, if you've never heard of Spelljammer, it was a very short-lived Dungeons & Dragons expansion series that uh, dealt with fantasy in space. Um, there was a short book series about it. I think it was like six books, novels, um, which I've read all of those. and They were actually pretty good. Um, it just didn't do well. The concept, it didn't last very long, unfortunately. It wasn't very popular. But uh, I enjoyed the concept of it, and I'd never really played with it. Uh, and so this was the chance... For in the story for me to kind of dabble with it a little bit without um, opening spell jamming basically up to whichever fantasy world I was DMing at the time. Kind of gave me a chance to just dabble with it and see how it went. So, our four heroes basically popping in in the middle of a battle, not sure what's going on. All they know is some type of creature is attacking a ship. And while normally they would be wary of a uh, mind flare or a lithid. The crew appears to be mostly humans, elves, and some dwarves, other than that big hippo thing. So they're like, okay, well, immediately they've got to make a decision. Who do we help? Well, this monster's attacking a ship of what would consider normally to be decent races, you know, races that aren't known or prone to evil, especially the elves definitely help in that regard. And they don't know exactly what's going on, but, you know, big monster attacking people, that's what they do. They hop in and they help, so... They decide to do so and uh, quickly enter into battle. Um, already, the battle had been underway for a while, and so there were already people on the ship who had taken uh, damage and serious injuries from the what's called an Astro Sphinx. Um, Artemis immediately stepping in to do her best to try to heal um, and save the lives of those that she can, while still keeping an eye on her companions. Uh, with the Sphinx flying around and the ship has ballista and several what you'd consider your normal ranged attacked things on the ships um, but it leaves Darsh and Mercy a little ill-equipped unless the thing happens to just fly down where they are and where they can smack them with their weapons they are a little bit um, out of bounds there they don't, have, they don't have a lot that they can use to hit them Dandy has her daggers but she only has so many and the last thing Dandy wants to do is start whipping magical daggers off of a ship to watch them float off into space or whatever the case may be. So, um, quickly they see that there are a large amount of javelins and spears that um, the ship's folks are using, the regular crew. Looks like this is, you know, and you have to understand, if you're flying in space, ranged combat is very, very common in a spell jamming type kind of concept, or in this type of concept. If your sh ship shaped like a dragon comes across a ship shaped like a manta ray or shaped like a whatever, just like in regular ocean, you're going to be shooting cannons or spells or using ranged weapons. So there are crossbows and there are things of that nature. Mercy immediately starts grabbing uh, some javelins or a crossbow and different things at the time. She can use them all. So starts doing what she can to jump in with ranged attacks. Dandy doing the same. Um, Darsh grabs several javelins and with his strength, he can whip them pretty much further than nearly anybody on the ship. Um, and so he very, very quickly starts hitting the Astro Sphinx uh, with his shots because the Sphinx is smart enough to very often swoop in, do damage, and then back out outside of range, uh, being careful of the ballista. 
Darsh scores a couple very good hits early on. Um, but as he sees javelins very quickly, things like that are going to start running low. Um, he then moves to the ship uh, more to the front where he starts assisting with the ballista. Um, with his strength grabbing the larger, uh, huge arrow type things that would be fired. Um, he, he very greatly increases the speed of reloading because where it's taking several of them to load it sometimes he can just grab it and do it himself and then turning the winch the equivalent of three or four normal people um, while he's not firing it he drastically increases the rate of fire um, dandy learns very quickly because she starts throwing some of tries to throwing the javelins and she's no slouch she's in pretty great shape herself and uh, she's she actually of all of them the one who uses ranged weapons the most javelins not something she normally uses uh, her aim's not super hot, but as she does throw them, she realizes that when they go a certain distance, some of the people that are throwing, especially Darsh, when he misses, those javelins just go off kind of forever. They, they go out and they just keep going. But if something's thrown it's not thrown far enough, a lot of times it will just gently start to fall, and it slides, it goes down below the ship, um, which Danny realizes, okay, so there's some type of gravity type concept because things are going down they're just not floating and we're being held to the ship uh, she's the first one to really draw attention to that hello neon thank you for coming by saw you pop in there um so she's paying she's paying kind of paying attention to that and she notices that some of the crew are are even using that um some folks when the when the swings come down and damages the ship there are some people who will literally almost climb down the side of the outside of the ship. And they're not using ropes or anything. But there's some type of light gravity uh, that as long as they hold on, they're able to kind of walk down the side. They can, they're not walking down like an average Joe down the side of the wall, but they're climbing down to the point that something is pulling them towards the ship. Um, which is common how that works. There's usually a mage on the ship who creates an atmosphere. Uh, which provides air and such, and there's a ball around the ship of um, basically its own little, um, what's what I'm looking for, atmosphere, like I'm saying, um, and it has a gravity, but the gravity is the center of the ship, so once you go off the side and go down the ship, gravity is going to technically pull you up, so if you were to take a pebble and just lightly toss it off the side, it would normally go down, possibly come back up the other side till it gets about the center waypoint, and then it'll kind of float, maybe come even closer to the ship. Um, so it is, it is common for people to fight all around the ship that's needed. But if you get knocked off too far and you get outside that atmosphere, it's regular space. Cold, no air, no gravity, you die. So uh, these folks on the ship clearly know about that. And Dandy, as she's making these revelations, are kind of calling them out to her friends. Hey, don't fall over. <laughs> Stay in close kind of thing. Which probably don't need to be told that much, but it was, uh, it was things that I allowed them, uh, as we were playing, to learn through different actions that they took. Um, the Astro Sphinx is large. Uh, it is probably from nose to end, uh, probably about 17 feet. Uh, huge wingspan. Uh, it's very white in color, uh, almost a shimmering white. So a mix between a white and a almost like a crystalish kind of thing. It's not crystalless. The fur just kind of has that effect. Um, and unlike some Sphinx, it's not overly intelligent. You know, some Sphinx are genius level. Uh, this Sphinx that uh, has the ability, its own magic allows it to survive in the um, outreaches of space. Its own magic gives it its own ability to produce air. And some creatures can even live without air, depending on their magic. Uh, like a stardust. Yes, very much mystique. Thank you. Yeah, very much like a stardust kind of shimmering on it. Um, it has the ability to speak 
like a broken common should it need to, but it is a bit more animalistic than some of its more intelligent cousins. And so it's really attacking with a ferociousness, but with a little bit of strategy of having done this before. Um, so Darsh, in his actions, takes some big hits early, which kind of draw its ire towards him, and then he moves to the Ballista. Um, the Ballista then starts doing more damage. Um, the Sphinx is very agile, but once it starts moving or swooping in, it kind of gets stuck on its course. I mean, it's not, it can't just stop in midair like a hard stop. Um, and so the Ballista scores a couple big hits, which again, at this point, the Sphinx realizes every time it's getting hurt, it's seeing Darsh happens to be where that's coming from. So it then starts focusing where Darsh is. This enables Darsh to uh, cease loading the Ballista and draw his own weapons. And as the Sphinx comes in and crashes to the side of the ship, its claws on its feet literally digging into the side of the ship while it's uh, on the side, where it's kind of hanging over the deck and attacking with the the claws and and, and bite. Mercy rushing in uh, at that point, drawing her own Morningstar, uh, starts smacking away on that. Um... See, I'm trying to remember. What, and if you'll remember, Mercy got um, in the last adventure. Uh, she had got a magical item that was a ring that she wears. That she also puts on her Morning Star. Does everyone? I want to make sure I did talk about that. Everyone remember the magical item that she got that she could attach to her Morning Star. I'm pretty sure I talked about it, but I'll give it a second for the delay. Um, she got her Morning Star. She's jumping in and. and doing damage uh, as well. Yes, okay, good. So she has the ring, and with her Morning Star, she can basically summon her Morning Star to her hand uh, from anywhere. At this point, the, the belief was anywhere in the world. Now, will it go from planet to planet, like spell jamming would imply, that's a little bit beyond what she knows. But luckily, in this situation, at one point, the Sphinx does disarm her. He managed to hit her, send her flying, and her Morning Star goes floating off the side of the ship. Um, Instantaneously, she just summons to your hand and pop, it appears again. It's not like Thor does come flying through the air into her hand. It literally just will reappear in her hand. And then she's able to jump right back into combat. It's the first time she really got to use that after getting it um, and very quickly realized how helpful that was going to be for her. Um, not that she loses her weapon more than anyone else. Um, <laughs> that, that does happen. But uh, uh, just being able to even at some point learn to use her Morningstar as a minor um, projectile weapon. Um, a lot of people can use a war hammer as a melee weapon, and if they learn, they can learn to throw it. Same as you can learn axe throwing and things of that nature. After this point, um, for now that she has that ring, over time, Mercy does slowly start using and teaching herself to be able to throw the Morning Star as a ranged weapon, um, giving her some very often one good hit before melee even combines without her losing her weapon, or even having to take the time to draw or rearm herself. Um, so that, that helps her out in many battle situations moving forward. With the crew also attacking, firing and such, you know, once the Sphinx latched onto the ship and really entered into melee range, only a certain amount of uh, crewmen can get close enough to fight it, and Darsh and Mercy in there wailing, some of them are kind of standing back because they're they're really doing well. The only thing that really jumps in there with them is that big hippo-type creature I was talking about. And again, this thing stands as tall, if not taller, than Darsh. An incredibly thick, dense body, 
um, very thick legs, and as it walks on the deck, the deck creaks. It's heavy. It's way heavier than Darsh is. But its head is that of a hippo, even though it's got regular, what you say, hands and feet. It's uh, tall but stocky. Um, and it rushes in, and it has some type of, I guess you'd call it like a flintlock pistol, something your old you know, pirates and such would have. Um, and he, it, it had been loading and firing it, and it was relatively slow, and he gets in close and fires it once good at the um, Sphinx and then drops it, and then he himself draws a large hammer. And he starts going to town on that. Um, the type of creature creature that this is is called a gif. Um, and it's a hippo combo. And it's a very cool creature that I always wanted to play myself that I never had the opportunity to. Um, so I just did not have a chance to kind of put that together. But it was it's a, it's a cool creature that I like. Um, so the battle rages on. Eventually, the creature's starting to take more damage than it's giving. And the Sphinx realizes, okay... This isn't going to work. I need to back off. And the Sphinx literally does that. It unlatches from the ship. Um, the crew and such continue to fire at it because they don't want to you know, leave it out there to attack them again later. But um, the Sphinx does manage to break off and get away before enough damage is done to it to kill it. Um, it flies out of range and then very weakly and limply because it did take some damage to a wing. Um, they fly not just from regular flapping but from magic as well. So slows him down, but having a damaged wing is not going to keep him from flying in space. Uh, it just kind of gets off and starts to float off and fly off in another direction relatively quickly. Um, once it's ascertained that this is and is in fact fleeing, a cry comes up from the ship, everybody cheers, like, oh, we survived that, holy hell. Um, and people start immediately starting to deal with some of the damage. Um, there was some damage to some sails and things of that nature. Um, everybody's just kind of going there and people are and people are you know some people are clapping mercy and darsh on the back and uh they even seem very excited about uh, uh dandy in fact oddly enough dandy notices this very quickly they treat dandy just as well as they treat everyone else um dandy doesn't get that often from strangers uh, most str strangers or people who see a kender know you get too close to a Kender, or Kender, half the stuff in your pockets can go missing, you know? Um, and that they, they'll cause more trouble sometimes than they're worth. Um, but to everyone here in, on the ship, they're just treating them as normal. And Dandy's like, hey, that's pretty cool. That's nice. All right. And the reason for that is, is none of these creatures, none of these people had ever seen a Kender before. No idea what a Kender was. And to them, it just looks like a small elf. They think nothing of it. Uh, these are a group of people that travel from world to world at times, so they get to see a larger range of creatures and people than the average person would. So um, seeing someone who jumped in and was incredibly helpful and looks like a little elf to them, that's probably just like some type of little elf. Yay. You know. It's not long as people are starting to get back to repairs and getting back to doing what they're doing and starting to stow away weapons and gathering what they can that are literally floating off the sides of the ship at this point. When the Illithid comes up to the characters. And they've been waiting on that. They've been, they've been watching it because, again, anyone with a knowledge of Illithid know that inherently, normally, they're an evil race. Um, not only do they have the ability to telepathy, to speak to you, your mind, mind control, uh, and then just eating your brains in general is kind of a thing of them. Not zombie-like, but, you know, the tentacles and going in your face and feeding up in your eyes and then sucking in your brain. Uh, there's some of that going on with, with normally, but this one is hanging out with a bunch of humans, elves, and creatures that, that don't look like they've been eaten. <laughs> so 
that's a point up, and it's it's uh, in his. Uh, he comes up and immediately, of course, thanks them for their help. I mean, clearly anyone on the ship could see that they made a huge difference in that battle. Uh, again, especially Darsh. Um, he introduces himself. Uh, as his name is Kaasa. Um, and Inch also introduces his first mate, Dupus, which there's a reason for that. Dupus, which is the gif that was there. And that's the, the hippo creature. Um, it's his first mate. And he, um, the gif is looking at Kaasa, and like Kaasa is looking at him, and the gif nods and walks off. And it's clear that he was speaking to him telepathy. That's how um, Kaasa talks all the time. He doesn't talk through its mouth. It's always in line, but he can, of course, focus to specific people, so he could be standing right next to you talking to the person beside you, and you won't hear that conversation unless he wants you to. So, uh, he nods and goes off and starts, again, overseeing repairs and getting the ship back up and going. Kaasa asks, while I appreciate all your help, I have to ask, out here in the middle of nowhere, how did you get aboard my ship? In the middle of the battle and the fight and everything going on, at no time did anyone have time to come up with a story. <laughs> I mean, they didn't have time to talk. They were immediately in combat. So they all start looking at each other like, okay, well, how do we explain this? And it's Dandy who steps up um, and greets him and says, hello. So we are a, a group of travelers uh, who just basically uh, going out through the world and seeking a, a, a homeland of our own. We've lost our home and we're looking for it. And a magical wizard like there's any kind, but he says magic wizard. A magical wizard, uh, they had paid him to help them find home and said they could cast a spell that would bring them closer to their home than where they were. And they so they paid heavily for that spell, and when the wizard cast a spell on them, they appeared on this ship. The friends are looking at her a little dubiously, but they don't want to interrupt because, you know, they want to say, no, that's a full lie. They're like, okay, we'll, we'll go with Dandy. The uh, Lithid's listening, Chaosa, and a moment later, a wizard comes walking up. And Kaosa turns towards him. Clearly they're speaking. And the wizard nods. It says that that was one of the two ship's mages. Um, and that he says, it is possible that a spell of great power might have teleported you to here. But why here, he doesn't know. Um, but he won't, he can't ignore the fact that in a situation like this, you definitely were the, the difference of saving my ship, myself, and my crew. Um, so at least for now, you're welcome to stay. <laughs> What's the option? Throw you off into space. Um, you may stay with us here, um, and then once we determine what's going on or we get to another world, we can drop you off and figure out what's going on. And our heroes, again, not knowing what's happening, are like, okay, sure, that'd be great. Thank you. Um, the crew itself... Um, Pretty evenly uh, distributed, gender-wise, male, female, a uh, couple, uh, un, un, couldn't really tell, because like I said, it's mostly humans, elves, and dwarves, but there's a couple other races that look like they're a version of human or elf, but with some minor differences, creatures that they, races they've never seen before, and so some of the races uh, themselves uh, look non-gendered, just themselves, they just look kind of the same regardless. Of course, they're not going to ask, but I'm just giving an idea of the type of crew that they have. Um, so, 
everyone probably much has a, a major bunk room or a standard bunk room they're given a place to sleep uh, they are put next to each other there are some extra bunks several people have uh, not survived the trip up to this point so there are some open bunks uh, so they're given a place Darcy's a little cramped but everybody else is pretty fine um, and that's kind of what's what's going on there so they're, they're on the ship now moving forward uh, the mind flayer doesn't tell them they have to work, but he also doesn't tell them much about where they are, only that they're welcome on the ship for the time being until they can find a place to drop them off. So for the next 24 hours, they don't really see much of anybody of rank. <clears throat> the first mate pops in once or twice just to make sure that they're okay. Let him know, hey, it's meal time. If you go here, you can eat. You know, that kind of stuff. Is there anything you need specifically? He's not very talkative. Uh, his voice is, he speaks very, very clear common, uh, but it's very deep, gruff voice. Uh, that sometimes if he's speaking low, it would almost sound like rumbling more than talking. And sometimes it's a little hard to understand if he's trying to be quiet. But he has a very loud, booming voice uh, naturally. Um, and they, the ship uh, crew, on the other hand, they, they're completely, you know, different. They're like, hey, thanks for helping us out, so on and so forth. Tell us stories. And, and of course, Dandy loves that. And very quickly... Dandy becomes popular on the ship, telling cool stories and adventures that she's had and that they've had, and she knows enough to leave out things like the magical stones and artifacts and demigods and Michael and all that kind of stuff. But she, uh, she very adventurous tales, sometimes a little bit more elaborate than actually happened. Uh, but very quickly, uh, when when the crewmen who are not actively working, Dandy's very quickly giving them rousing tales. And none of them really pick up on the fact that some of their stuff seems to be going missing. Uh, but since it's not majorly affecting anybody, it seems to be okay. And everyone's accepted, but Dandy becomes quite popular. And even to the point when they're... And Darsh, of course, immediately coming from a seafaring race himself... Uh, proves to be quite knowledgeable in the workings of the ship. This ship is very different than any ship he's ever seen, as it's run by magic more than by water, but some of the concepts are the same. The wind and the projection is caused by one of the two mages on the ship who sleep in shifts, um, keeping the atmosphere running and such. But there's still the rigging and such, and once he's shown the differences, again, his strength and dexterity and being able to climb up and down mass... Um, very, very quickly leads him into becoming a very useful member of the crew. Um, the gif and no one else really makes any like, hey, don't do that. They seem to welcome the assistance, especially when he starts showing expertise at it. Mercy and Artemis, a little different. Um, they're familiar with Artemis uh, as a cleric, and they seem to be familiar with the same gods that they have. They're aware of uh, Tavian and his symbol. And so, again, as always, a cleric is always welcome, but um, being what would be considered uh, an elf and a holy cleric, she's given space because she's kind of looked up at. You know what I mean? It's like, okay, she's not the type... We don't want to mess with her. We don't want to interrupt her stuff. She's a, almost up on a pedestal type. And Mercy blends in with the, with the crew just fine, though she doesn't have the expertise Starsh does or quite the storytelling uh, capabilities as Dandy. But after 24 hours, um, they're called to the... Uh, come, comes and gets them. They're taken to the captain's quarters. And the captain says that he's been speaking to his mage and he's been speaking to the GIF and uh, how quickly they've acclimated themselves to the crew uh, was a very big positive. And so um, they, he says, he has them come in, sit down, gives them some, something to eat and drink. And she's like, and the Elithid's like, we're on a mission of, of uh, exploration ourselves. Um, and you said that you were trying to get closer to your home. Uh, while I don't know where that is, the fact that the spell brought you here... Um, and just discussing that with, with my uh, ranking members, 
we've come to the conclusion that very likely then where we're going, or at least the direction we're heading, might be getting us closer to where, you, where you're from um, or where you're, your home that you're looking for. And oddly enough, at no time, does anyone on the ship ever ask them the name of their home? What's it look like? What's their world from? What is it they're looking for? It's just kind of taken for granted that they're looking for a home, which is somewhere. The, they, the characters realized this. Um, and while none of it looked shady, it was just kind of odd that no one asked, okay, well, what is it you're looking for? It's just seemed like, okay, cool, you're looking for a home. We'll help. Uh, not in a, a negative or a dangerous or scary kind of way, but in an odd, you'd think that would pop up in the conversation. But, you know, they're being very wary because, again, it is a lithid. And in the back of their mind, they're like, well, everybody's friendly and nice, but what if they turn on us? So they were very careful the whole time they were here. Uh, but Kiasa says that they are, he is a scholar, and this is a ship, and he's exploring for knowledge. And he spent most of his life seeking out the center. And uh, from his research across the worlds that he's traveled and the great libraries that he's visited and all of his research, the center is the birthplace, the, the first location, the center of the universe, uh, the spot where the gods came together to create this existence. Um, and at the center, literally at the center, um, supposedly once there, in this location would be found the secrets of the universe or um, extreme knowledge and wealth uh, that this center would really lead anyone who can find it uh, to the, and as well, it was also the birthplace of the first race. Those, those, that race that was first created by the gods um, upon the creation of the existence. Um, what that first race is, he says there's a lot of um, disagreement Come scholars. Most races seem to think that their race was the first race. Egotistical things. Um, many believe that potentially dragons were the first race, being the longest lived and some of the most ancient creatures on many of the worlds that he's come across. And he leans potentially a bit more towards that as well. Um, but he said it's also a talk of maybe there was even a, a race that eventually broke up and became the different humanoid races that are seeded throughout the universe. This first race may have been an original race, um, which is kind of a combination or merging of many of them that over time split up to become the races that we now know. And he says, this is where we're questing. You said you were on not only a quest to find a way home, but a quest for knowledge as well. Um, so I invite you to join along as a members of this crew. Um, he basically says, this is what we're paying people. We will offer you the same rate if we find wealth or treasure at wherever. You will get your percentage share as a regular crew member does. Not as big a share as the mages and the first mate and the captain get, but a regular section of the crew, uh, their percentage. Now, our heroes don't have a lot of options here. They don't have to think about it a lot. They're like, yes, of course. They don't know why they're here or why they're brought to the ship. But again, much like them, they've talked about it. And they're like, we're clearly here for a reason. We're here looking for a stone. Maybe this ship is going to a stone. Or maybe someone here has it. And that's something they've been watching for. Especially with the wizards and the, and the uh, Elithid, Kiasa. Just to see if anyone has a merged stone somewhere merged to them. Or on a piece of item. And they keep watching. But they haven't found any signs of the stone on the ship. But their thoughts are either the stone is on the ship. Or something where the ship is going, maybe where the stone is. So they're like, okay, we've got to buy time anyways. Sure, we will join up as part of this. 
Um, and they're given a lot of information about his research and some of the history of uh, his ship and his crew. And I'm not going to go into a lot of that because a lot of that I don't have written down. <laughs> but he does go into a lot of his history and, and the research he has come up to this point, which is um, I was very proud of at the time. Um, but yeah. So they're invited in and they become a part of the ship. Um, they're basically given basic duties. Um, Darsh, of course, with his strength and such, is um, he's he's basically asked to, or told to do some of the things that are a bit more physically strenuous. But Darsh actually enjoys it. In fact, across many of their adventures, the whenever they end up on a ship, Darsh very quickly seems to acclimate into helping with the crew. Um, he spent most of his early life growing up on his uh, fought one of his father's ships because his father had a merchant fleet, and. Um, that's one of his happiest times is when he's on a ship. He enjoys working in the, the actions of working on a ship. And while there's no ocean spray here, it's still close enough that he's having a good time. So. That was correct, Neon. Space Navy is just another Navy, after all. <laughs> so, this goes on. Now, of course, with this being a, a story base that was actually being played as a Dungeons & Dragons adventure... You can't just show up where you got to go. There's got to be a couple of things that happen on the way. And the Astrofinks was the first one. The second thing that happens to them after they've been traveling for about four or five days at this point, and they know most of the crews by names now, and the crew knows them. And, um, and while there seems to be a, a minor rash of people having a hard time uh, finding some of their items, it's assumed that people have been just maybe space and being out so long. They've been out longer than most people spend in space, so it's chalked up that uh, potentially people are just misplacing items due to tiredness, so people are commanded to uh, get a little bit additional sleep on their off time. Of course, no one uh, checks Dandy's stuff, but that's where half it goes. But everybody seems to be getting along fine. Um, the ship has plenty of food and water and uh, beverage stuff to, to handle a trip of what they're taking. Um, where they're going, they're going into an area of deep space that most ships don't travel. Two reasons. One, there's no known worlds in this the direction that they're going. Uh, they've been traveling a very long time, so there's no um, friendly ports or even any ports that, that are, would normally show up on their maps. As well as when you get further out into wild space, you have a bigger chance of running into more things like an astrofinx, things out there that can cause problems. So um, they're constantly on guard. And um, let's see here. The only other thing that they really run into is um, at four or five days in, there's an alarm that goes off. Everyone's called out. Again, everybody's like, Darsh and I'm like, ooh, astrofinx. Okay, let's go. And they start running upstairs with their gear and their armor because most of them were sleeping at the time. Um, and instead, you see the crew rushing about, starting to arm themselves. And um, the first mate, our gif, if you will, uh, named Dubas, comes up and he's like, and they say, what's going on? And he says that there's a scrow ship uh, behind them. Uh, and the ship is moving much faster. And, you know, they're like, okay, what, what's a scrow ship? And the gif seems a bit surprised that they don't know what that is. But he's like, he goes, the gif are a goblin-like race. Um, very military in their, in their manners, and they're um, not as much as you say space pirates, but they are um, anybody who comes in your ship is an enemy if you're not a scrow, and they will destroy you and take your, your stuff. So uh, basically, they're being chased by the ship. It's slightly larger than the ship that um, they're on currently, um, and it will overtake them at some point. It's definitely moving faster. So everyone's preparing for battle because these uh, are not a race that talk. You know, you either um, immediately 
You know, it's one of those, you'll get an ultimatum. Give up or die. And that's exactly what happened. And the ship finally catches up. And when I say catches up, it starts coming alongside of them. Both ships are still moving. But uh, they can see there's a large amount of crew on the other side. And they start, usually they hear an ultimatum yelled out in common. And basically, you know, basically stop your ship. <laughs> pull over. <laughs> License registration. Just kidding. It's like, pull over. And basically, um, give up. Or else you'll, you, you know, we'll basically attack. I don't know why I struggled with saying that for some reason there. I could not get the, uh, the words that I wanted to flow there. Um, but it's basically uh, demanding surrender. That's the term I'm looking for. Surrender or die. Um, and they, of course, choose die. <laughs> well, kind of. They, uh, the Elithid is commands. It's like, no, we'll, we'll be enslaved or killed, sold off at some port. Um, he goes, I'll be killed immediately. And he goes, I'm going to talk what's going to happen to some of the crew. So it's basically, in either case, fight or die. And battle attacks, or battle ensues. Uh, the Scro ship very quickly uh, starts firing grappling hooks and things. And there's crossbow bolts and uh, bows that are being fired uh, from both ships each direction. But the Scro very quickly are firing uh, crossbow bolts, um, uh grappling hooks and such, and pulling the ships closer together, it is quite clear that they're looking to board the ship. There are a lot of them, uh, at least two to three times the amount on their ship as there is on the hero ship. So they're drastically outnumbered. If the ship gets close enough um, and that they can start being boarded, they'll very quickly be overwhelmed. Uh, basically, this is told to them by the Olithid, although some of that was common sense just seeing it. Again, Darsh and our heroes start using their ranged weapons and grabbing the javelins and such that have been gathered up. There's a lot of them. Start shooting those while trying to dodge arrows and crossbows being fired back at them. And one of my favorite parts about this battle that happened uh, was really what um, the player who ran Dandy did. Um, Dandy, uh, while all this has been going on, you know, they've been role-playing some on the ship and stuff, Dandy had been playing with and experimenting with how the gravity worked. Um, and she, at this point, with being as overwhelmingly agile as Dandy is, uh, and dexterous, she very, very quickly started using that gravity uh, as, as a boon. So imagine a grappling hook comes over and hooks onto the ship. You can try to cut that rope or try to break the chain that's attached to it, but that's not going to be very easy to do. The people on the other ship are going to start trying to pull over and sometimes we even come out on the chain and start climbing over to you to try to get over. And people are swinging from ropes and such like you'd see in a regular pirate movie, swinging trying to get onto the other ship as the ships get closer together. Uh, Dandy will literally just hop up and start running down the ropes or the chains that are attaching the grappling hooks. Um, being able to tightrope walk as well as she could normally, the way the gravity works really lends to holding her up. It's not as much of a pull down as you would normally get. Which means that when people are trying to climb across the chain, Dandy would just run out there and stab hands and such, and they would fall off the ship or whatever the case may be, um, while dodging whatever and then running back again. And so after just a few minutes of attempting that, they... The scrolls stop trying to come across the chains and really start focusing more on bringing the ship together. Um, which helps. It slows down them getting onto the ship. Um, there comes a point where there's battle where Dandy was literally running down the side of a ship 
uh, fighting while standing on the side. She would have be like with her dexterity and such and the way she was, she could almost be running down the ship more than a normal person could and then using that to vault off into the gravity to grab onto someone, climb up them, or whatever the case may be. And that helped her save some people who fell over as well as she learned that much like underwater, you can push off of someone and use that gravity to pull you. She started doing all messes, uh, sort of things and she rolled for it and such and nothing was outside the overwhelming realm of possibility. Uh, I was probably a little bit more uh, open-minded in what I allowed her to do at that point, but um, the young lady who played her uh, did an incredibly good job of coming up with interesting ways to use Dandy's natural abilities uh, with the different type of gravity and fighting style created by these two ships' natural gravity. Um, so that was a lot of fun. She came up with a lot of great ideas. Nothing too crazy. A couple things on the borderline, maybe. Uh, but Dandy did a lot of really interesting tricks that really benefited the crew. Uh, Darsh, again, when um, was one of the few people that could feasibly break the rope or sometimes chains that were hooked to the grappling hooks. Um, it wouldn't be easy beating with his strength. Sometimes he, he can snap a decent-sized chain. Um, and these chains aren't super heavy-duty. Someone's having to throw them. You know, you can imagine there's going to be a lighter chain, but a sword's not really going to break it. Darsh could. And so snapping a lot of those and tossing them over and anything that was a rope, the crew themselves were cutting at. It really slowed down the bringing of the ships together. But over time, just through numbers, it was still happening. It's at this point that the mages entered into battle. Every, every ship in space has to have a wizard. Normally, you have to have at least two. Because they have to sleep in shifts, because someone has to constantly be maintaining the atmosphere um, of the ship, as well as providing the movement, the wind. There's a lot of stuff involved with it. So they're no slouches. They're pretty powerful themselves. So while all this is going on, there's each ship's going to have a mage controlling the ship, focused on that. Any additional mages would be jumping into regular battle. And most of the ships that you find are going to be made out of traditional ship materials. Woods, cloth sails, things of that nature. So very quickly, fire jumps into play. And fire starts being shot from each side of the ship. And also in the bows and crossbows and things, there's some lit torches and molotovs, things that are being thrown and hurled to try to catch the opposite boats on fire, while at the same time your crew is trying to keep your ship from catching on fire. Uh, kind of became almost like a little mini-game because that is a lot of what Mercy and Artemis were doing during this time was to stop the spread of the fire on the ship and to assist while Artemis was also trying to heal when healing needed done. Uh, but uh, it was Darsh and uh, Dupus who were doing a lot of the right up front damage. Dupus was very... His little pistol only fires one or two and it's slowed to reload, but he's he's pretty, pretty dead-eye with it. Um, and so they were doing some serious damage there. And Darsh and him were also snapping and breaking chains because he's also incredibly strong. While larger and heavier than Darsh, not quite as strong as Darsh, though. So all that's going on. While this is going on, of course, the one weapon they have that really benefits them more than anything else is Kiasa himself. Uh, being a mind flayer, he is able to attack the minds of some of the crew when they get in range. And he's not attacking them all. He's not overwhelmingly powerful, and he's not a fighting illithid, if you will. He's not someone who spent his whole life learning to dominate like that. He has natural abilities. He's more of a, a researcher and, um, you know, I guess you could say a librarian than anything else. But he still has some of these natural abilities, and he is convincing some people of different things to throw themselves off the ship or inflicting pain, blinding them, stuff like that. Um, 
The Skrull have nothing like that on their side, so they don't really have any defense against anything psionic, which is really what, what Chaosa does. So the big difference here, the big thing that ended up ending the battle, that really brought it down to everything, was uh, Darsh at one point goes and takes over the Ballista again. And the Ballista had been damaged and was unable to fire. But what he and the GIF ended up doing is literally they started throwing Ballista. Because they're strong, and with the gravity and the way things work, you can throw things a little bit further than you normally can. Even walking around on the ship, you feel very light-footed. Gravity's a little lighter than it would be on a regular world. Um, so he and the GIF together, hurling these things, because by this point the ships were getting close, wasn't going to do a lot of damage to the ship. But what they did do was wrap it in cloth and light them on fires. And they could throw them hard enough that if it, they weren't aiming for the the ship and people, they were aiming for the lower sides of the ship. And the ballista would hook into them and then the fire would start to spread. And being low as it was, the scroll were having a hard, would have a hard time getting down to put those out without literally jumping off their boat, being in range of bows and things of that nature. So several well-placed, thrown heavy ballista into the side of the ship of the scroll really started to cause some fire because the mages are duking it out and Chaos is doing what he's doing and everybody's jumping around. And Dandy, just she's swinging and climbing and flying all over the place. She was a blast to hear her ideas. It was great. Um, but over time, while their crew had taken a bigger hit, they were more injured actually on, on our hero's side, the, the Scrow's ship took much more damage. Uh, because the Scrow were, they're trying to take over the ship. They want it for parts or to steal it as their own ship, things of that nature. So while they're trying to do this, they're not trying to do too much damage to the ship, whereas the heroes, they have nothing holding them back. They are doing all the damage to the Scrow ship they can. Um, and much like with the fight with the Sphinx, it gets to a point where the Scrow realize, okay, if we stay here much longer, we're going to lose, and they have to basically break off their own attack. This is good and bad. Uh, it's good because, of course, that means... Chaos's ship is no longer under attack, but it still leaves a, a, a scroll ship out there. Um, and so, as the scroll ship starts to, you know, it's going off in its direction, floating off, um, Chaos says that they're going to basically do something, the, the wizards are going to do something to try to hide their trail, but it does mean that they're going to have to go immobile for a while. And so they basically fly for several hours until they come to basically we call your asteroid type kind of thing, a little field of rocks that are floating through. Um, and they just go in a short ways, but then they basically go dark. And going dark, kind of the concept of a submarine. It's when you turn off everything that's not required. It minimizes the gravity. It minimizes the, there's no more air blowing you around. You're bringing life support down to a very minimal. Uh, it makes your ship much harder to detect. Uh, much like it would with a submarine in our world. Um, it's also, um, while one wizard is maintaining that, just enough for basically everyone to stay alive, and people aren't moving. People, Life support's low. Breathing becomes difficult. Everyone is kind of sitting or sleeping, and very little movement. Um, one wizard is using spells to cloak the ship, while the other one is keeping it basically running, which is a big strain on them, because they're both running at the same time. Eventually, somebody ha has to sleep. Um... But they basically stay like that for 24 hours um, until it gets to the point that the mages aren't going to have much other options. Someone's going to have to rest. Um, and without any sign of the scrow ship, they decide to go ahead and break off and to continue moving forward. Um, and at that point, what they did worked. They never did see the scrow ship again. 
No one was seriously injured in that fight. Uh, Dandy actually took a couple more hits than anyone else just because of the daringness of her moves and getting in as close to the enemy as she did. Um, but even after that, uh, with what everybody was doing, Dandy was kind of hailed as the hero of that battle because uh, a lot of her really interesting ideas really bought them a lot of time to do damage to the enemy's ship. So it was very, very cool. It was, it was a good time to see Dandy really jump up. And, uh, you know, a lot of times no one's going to listen to a Kender because it's a Kender. Why would you do that? But in this situation, there was no bias towards her. So when she was jumping up, she's like, okay, I'm going to do this. Somebody grab this rope and swing me this direction. They're like, yeah, okay. And they believed her and what she did worked. Um, and it could be believed that uh, Dandy would have had an effect on space battles for years to come. <laughs> we'll see. Um, so yeah, that happened. Um, so interesting. I, I enjoyed that. It went well. Nine more days pass. Um, and during that time, there is some discussion um, of, do we continue? You know, we, we know the direction they're going. We don't know exactly how far they're going to find this place. The, all their research is basically still very vague. Um, Kiasa believes he knows the location. Um, and with what they've been using, again, they're in an area that's very uncharted. And with everything going on, they may be somewhat off course. So there's some concern, hey, at what point do we not have enough supplies to get home? They've not found any suitable worlds worth landing on. Um, some, you know, what you'd find, your gas planets and things, stuff that you can't really land to get any supplies. Nothing that would be considered a friendly port. So at some point, while they do have magic and such to kind of duplicate and make their supplies last by cutting back on rations, there is a point where you've got to decide, do I keep going forward or do we go home? Um, and that decision is going to have to be made very, very soon um, because they're about to hit that point where if they don't turn around, they're not going to have enough supplies to get back to the closest world that they know of, at least from where they are now. They continue on for, for, like I said, several days. So, as they've been traveling over these last few days, the one thing that really, really makes Chaosa feel that they're, they're going in the right direction is one thing that everyone is noticing is that you're seeing less and less stars. So again, imagine you have an unobstructed view of space, right? No clouds, no atmosphere, stars everywhere. Beautiful, clear sky. If you've ever used a telescope or just been in an area away from a city where there's no lighting, you can see how many stars there are really out there on a good night. Well, it's always like that on the ship. There's nothing inhibiting their vision. But as they're traveling, it literally seems like this distance between stars is becoming bigger and there's less and less stars visible. And that sounds odd, and we know with what our science, you know, that you're seeing light from however many thousand years ago is finally even reaching you from that star. Um, but even just moving around our world, you know, stars and stars are how they navigate there as well. There just seems to be more room between them. The stars are getting less and less. This is a magical universe after all. So these things happen. Um, and as they're moving, the sky, well, black space, takes on a slightly more lighter hue. And uh, that's noticed as well. It goes from just the blackness of a, of a black sun to... A black, but with a, a light, like almost like a little bit of a light behind it, if you will. Imagine a, a classic uh, kid's thing of a box. You put paper over it, you poke some holes in it with light behind it, right? But you're using a blue sheet instead of a black sheet. You're getting the light from the stars through, but it's got a bit more of a bluish tinge to the sky, even though there's the, the fewer uh, stars that they're seeing. They haven't seen a planet in a while, or anything they consider a planet. 
Um, so as they're moving forward, eventually a call comes out. They're sleeping. All the best stuff happens when you're sleeping. Everybody comes up to the ship, and Kayasa is there, and everyone's kind of rushing to the ships to look ahead. And looking around sometime throughout the night while they're sleeping, the sky is almost empty of stars at this point, and it's an even bluer space than, than normal, than what they'd seen up to this point. But ahead of them is almost what appears to be a star. So uh, a star, of course, is really a sun. We all know this. Um, but what's in front of them has the light of a star, but it doesn't give off, like, it doesn't heat and flames. They're not feeling hotter as they're getting closer to it. But they're heading straight for it, and it's definitely getting larger very, very quickly. Um, second in command, or first mate, basically is like, do we turn, Captain? Do we, do we go around it? And Chaos is like, no, this, this matches what we're looking for. We must continue to move towards it. And the crew's like, okay, well, we're moving towards a star. We walk into a star, we're going to burn up. We know how suns work. The captain again points out, you feel no heat. Nothing. They are starting to feel gravitational pull. They are starting to feel pulled towards the star. So the ship is actually increasing in speed. But the captain orders them to continue straight ahead. So they do. The captain assures them that this is what they were looking for, the center of the universe. Everyone else, not quite so sure, but Kiasa seems pretty sure, and you know, he's the captain, so that's what you do. Several hours go by, and I'm going to kind of read to you again a snippet of what I read to them. Uh, several more hours go by, and finally, as you're approaching what you thought was to be a star, in truth appears to be a very huge planet with a glowing-type atmosphere. So imagine, again, an atmosphere that you could see. Imagine the atmosphere kind of has like a glass look to it, right? Uh, not a perfectly clear glass, but a tinted glass, like a light bulb or something like that, like a, a, a hue. You can see through it, but there's, you can see specifically where that shield or atmosphere around it is. <clears throat> the captain orders that the crew push through the shield. Everyone's very nervous because it looks very solid. But the ship moves through the shield quite easily, as if there's nothing there. And as soon as they go through the air takes on a, a sweet smell. Uh, not in a negative way, but a, a pleasant kind of a, a sweet smell to the air. The ship slides downward through a thick cloud bank, uh, but once through, you're astounded by the beauty of the planet below. Uh, large crystal blue oceans and thick forests, huge snow-capped mountains and smooth rolling hills as they're coming down, flying across the world. Uh, you fly over the beautiful landscape for about an hour, uh, settling uh, and then the lookout calls out that the something is ahead. Because everybody's, you know, nobody's really left. Everybody's standing there looking out, watching this, because why would you stop? And everyone's looking for the same thing. People, living creatures, and they see no animals. They see uh, plants, trees and such, the standard type trees you'd see, except most of the trees they see are clearly huge. They've been here a very long time. A lot of very old trees, very tall, ancient. <clears throat> Excuse me. But ahead, finally, the lookout from above, who has the best eyes of anybody, that's why he's up there, uh, calls out, tension ahead, and everyone looks forward and sees that in the distance, as you're drawing closer, is a massive city. Golden and shimmering again, kind of like, in a, with a, like gold covered in like a diamond dust. It's very beautiful, arched, 
buildings, sky, and I'm not talking about like our type of city. It's definitely a fantasy, classic castle type kind of city. There's no skyscrapers and such, but it's huge towers and such, glistening. And it's very, it's the first signs of any type of civilization that you've seen on this world. The captain again commands the ship to continue that distance and set down softly outside the city. Uh, they get to the city and they kind of come around a little bit till they can see what appears to be a road type thing, entrance to a pair of large gates. And the doors of the gates are open. Still, no living creatures can be seen. No one in the city, no one walking around, no guards on the wall that surrounds the city. No one at the doors. Just the open gates leading inside. This shit sounds softly. And the ground has very thick, lush grass that seems to be growing in a very... Um, to a certain height. You know, you leave grass to grow, it'll get pretty high, but it, it's really just almost shin high for the average person. It seems to all grow in a very uniform height. And still, they see no signs of life. No insects, there's the sound of no birds, um, other than the, the wind and the odd sound that you'd hear from like a building creaking, or the ship especially creaking, the only sounds that you really hear. You know, if there's a stream, they hear stream sounds. It's like the world's muted, but there's no sounds of anything living. A large amount of crew, starting with the captain, disembark the ship. And it feels a little strange for them being on solid ground. They've, uh, the ship itself still has the feel of a moving ship to it. So on solid ground, there's a couple minutes of regaining your balance for everyone but Dandy, who acclimates to it immediately. <clears throat> and following the captain's order, you begin heading towards the city. The captain does leave a small bit on the crew on the ship, of course, and... But people are going in armed, because you don't know what's in there, but not overly aggressively, you know. The average arms, no one draws their weapons. They make their way to the city. As they're moving towards the city, cries from the ship behind them call out. And everyone turns around to look at the ship, and the ship are pointing off in a different direction. Kind of, if you were, if they were going for the ship was south, they're north, it's off to the east. And looking over, they see coming towards them what appears to be some kind of dragon. Unlike any dragon they've ever seen, more serpentine in nature. Um, I would say it looks more like the uh, classic uh, Asian-style Chinese, uh, Chinese dragons that you would normally see. Uh, but the dragon is black and white. Um, not like a cow or anything, but with like uh, patches of that, where like part of it's black, the wings may be white, uh, the back half is white, front half is black. So no one's ever seen a dragon of mixed colors like that. It's not one of the metallic dragons, uh, but one of the chromatics. And it's come flying in, and it doesn't look happy, I'm going to be honest with you. It seems very displeased. Um, the captain yells to run to the ship, run to the, uh, uh, the city. They're closer to the city than they are getting back to the ship. And his first instinct, we run back to the ship, but his hope is to draw attention away from a ship, because that ship gets damaged they're stuck here. So they're doing what they can to draw the, the dragon towards the city. And everyone rushes to the gates, and again, as they get closer, there's still no sign of life from the city. No one barring them or stopping them from entering. Uh, no one offering to help. They reach the city gates just as the dragon arrives. And 
the dragon very quickly comes to a stop outside the gates, and the dragon seems very angry, and it's yelling, or growling, if you will. It's not speaking. It doesn't seem to be speaking as an intelligent dragon would, but it seems like it does not want to enter the city, or it can't. It's staying a certain distance from, and it's not going after the ship, but it's staying there angrily looking at the those folks that have just entered inside the gate. Quickly looking around, they see beautiful homes, things that would be stores, shops, and everything is empty. One thing that they do notice very quickly is when it comes to most of the buildings they see, doors are larger than normal. In fact, Darsh could walk through most of these doors very comfortably. Whoever lived here was definitely not of a shorter age. They seemed to be taller in stature than, than the average human or elf. More of a Darsh height, which again, very, very high. But there's no one. You know, there are banners of signs or runes that they can't understand blowing in the light breeze. There's flags up and such. Um, carts that probably once had fruits on them. Nothing rotten or anything, just empty carts sitting outside of the building. The doors all appear to be basically closed. And the dragon's not coming in. They're like, well, if we go out, we're going to eat my dragon. See if we can find some help here. Maybe someone is here somewhere who can help us with this dragon. Maybe the dragon's a defense system or something. And as long as we're in here, maybe it'll stay away from the ship. So the captain leaves several people to stay there, so if it does attack the ship, they can come tell him immediately. Um, but the captain, the people start to fan out a little bit. And checking the homes, the homes seem very normal, looking through windows and such, and they avoid breaking into homes at this point. Again, they don't know if anybody is here, but looking through windows or through open doors, stores, maybe even some wares on the counter, guitar, a lyre over here, maybe even some... Um, such nothing they see that would be like they would want like swords or anything like that but just cat here's some rope and this person was obviously a shoemaker there's shoes on there very big shoes but shoes nonetheless um the style seems very elven like in a lot of the the um architecture but has more of a human feel when it comes to um usability uh humans very often build their their things to be very practical or elves will set aside practicability for beauty, make it more artistic in nature. So it's a combination of the two. And everyone starts going out and looking around. Several hours pass. It's a huge city. And our, our heroes stay with the captain. Um, the gif takes several people out in different directions, and they break it. It's a second-in-command, and he takes a group. But these guys stay with the captain. And they're making their way towards the center of the city because very quickly uh, of getting in there, over even the other buildings, you can see that there's a large tower-like castle in the center of this city. Um, and again, you would assume that being the largest building, that might be where they find someone. So they, they head that direction while people are breaking out trying to find people in different directions. It takes them a while because they're not just rushing there. They're calling out as they go because they don't want to surprise anybody in the languages that are there. Um, Darsh is even yelling, calling out in Minotaur, Elven, because they don't know what anybody speaks here. Hopefully somebody speaks something. Uh, in common, in, in, in uh, Chaos is not sensing anybody, but again, not knowing what or who lives here, he has to understand maybe he can't. Maybe the psionics are immune. There are races out there that psionics will not affect. So he's calling out psionically as well. But again, there's still no response from anyone. Finally, they arrive at this large building. And 
there is a moat around it, although the bridge that crosses the moat is permanent. It's clearly not, the moat is there more for aesthetics than it is for actual practical defense. Um, but it's a blue crystal uh, water stream, looks you know, really nice. It runs from some source, probably coming from the other side of the building. Um, there's flowers that appear to be well-tended or are growing naturally well-tended. Uh, there's not a lot of underbrush. The city seems like it. everybody just did a perfect cleaning of it yesterday and then was gone. And that's really the thing. As well as everything is upkept, there's no signs of decay or ruin, uh, things falling apart, buildings from long periods of being empty. So it feels like someone was just here, but there's nobody. They walk across, and the gates to this castle are open as well. And they make their way inside. Chaos are very excited because some of the runes and the symbols that he sees on the banners and on the walls, he's seen before in his research. These are the things that he would, that led him to believe that this is the center. This is what he's been looking for. And he believes that this is where the first race was created, where the gods put those first races down to begin populating the universe. And then maybe from here they went off to populate the other worlds slowly. Or maybe the gods just created new races there. Different stories depending on which race you talk to as to their origins. And they walk inside, and in the center they find a grand library. And they can see there's just shelves of books and of scrolls. There's tables for study. Again, well kept, no cobwebs, nothing dirty. And Kayasa walks towards the, the books, and he seems very hesitant to touch them, but he can, as he gets close, see runes glow on the side, and he, and he turns in what would be a, an illithid smile. He goes, I can read them. These are the stories of those who came before us. This tell the tales of the gods themselves. Within this is the original knowledge of the beginning of the universe. And he's very excited. He's walking around. He's not touching anything, but he, as he gets close, the tentacles are flipping, flipping. He gets close and the runes will pop up and he, he's reading the sides of them. And he's talking excitedly and even mentioning it's like some of these books even may tell the tales of what happened before the universe, where the gods came from, the source of everything. And he's just, and everybody's you know, looking at it. And our heroes, like everybody else, just kind of stand there watching him run around. And after a couple of seconds, they realize his voice is getting a bit quieter. And they look at him, and while they're still in the library and they're looking, he's started to fade a little bit. He's almost become a bit translucent. And he's, his voice is quiet, but he's still moving. And they look at the rest of the crew that are there with him, and the same thing is happening to them. It's like they're fading away while they're standing there. Of course, looking at each other, they're perfectly fine. None of our heroes have changed at all. But as it finally, their voices disappear, and they're starting to, they're calling out to Chaosa and them, and, but Chaosa doesn't seem to notice, and eventually everyone just fades away. And our four heroes are standing here in the middle of this library, not knowing what's going on. And then a small voice, quiet and well-aged, comes from the behind them, the doorway that they came in. And turning, they see another one of the small elves, the little folk that they originally found in that large dome of briars, the ones that sent them in. It was not one that they've seen before. She doesn't look like the wise woman or the prophet that they were, they spoke to originally. But she does look familiar. 
and the small figure, looking slightly faint themselves, walks forward smiling. Welcome, my friends. You've, you've had a long journey to get here, and I've waited so long for you. She introduces herself as Damia, and she is the oracle of that village, the one that you that basically walked into that room and never came back out, and you walked into that room to find her. Or the characters did. Not you personally, you know what I mean. <laughs> and Dandy's like, well, where are we? I mean, what what is this? What is what has this all been? What is this? And Damia says, you're walking through a version of the past. You're seeing what really happened. Where you stand now is the home of the Visanya. The first race, those created by the gods when the universe first began. The home of the Visani stones and where they were first created using the, that type of power of the universe to help create the universe through the gods. The stones were created by the Visani and assisted the gods in the jobs and the work of creating worlds and a universe and spreading magic out and change this world having one set of rules and this world having a different set of races the Visanya were assistants that helped the gods until the universe was complete and that they themselves could leave this place and go out and take their place among the other races she smiles and says that her race is one of the direct closest to the direct descendants um, and why for so long her race was hunted and sought by other races for their power and for their knowledge that over time they evolved smaller and smaller and easier to hide. They're like, so this is, this is the past that we're in? She goes, it's a version of the past. You stand now within inside the very stone that you seek. The space gem is showing you history. Because the captain that you traveled with and his ship really did happen a long time ago. And they found this place. And found here in the library much of the knowledge that they were looking to find. For, unfortunately, he wasn't able to read quite as much as he thought. There were books that told of the before times, but in languages beyond any understanding he or anyone on the ship could do. But what they did find were the stones. And he took the stones back with them. And as they traveled throughout, not knowing what the stones were, different members of the crew, different people had those stones. And they left the ship on this world and on that world. And the stones eventually spread apart across different worlds throughout the universe. Sometimes being lost, stolen, passing through different hands. Ending across multiple different worlds. Until the Great Merge happened. And in that chaos and in that moment the chunk of world where each of the stones were located was pulled through and every stone was brought through with it. Not together, different places, but all on this world itself. So what you saw this journey was a version of what really happened and how the stones finally came away from the center of the universe, a place where they were left where no one else was really supposed to mess with them and end up going out to cause problems throughout the universe. And that's where the stones came from. And they ask her, they're like, are you in the stone with us? And she smiles. 
because my job was to lead you here, was to show you the past and what happened so that you, way you can move forward to bring the stones together for the first time in generations. Because it's important that this happen. What you're doing, your goals, your quest, are just a tiny, tiny piece of a larger story that's going on right now. You are only a small piece of events you cannot begin to fathom. But for these to move forward, you need the stones. And she gives them a bit of knowledge they did not have before. She advises them that if any person has hold of five of the stones at one time, the power of those five stones, and they're not merged, just happen to have them, will give them the ability to unmerge a stone. So with the stones they have, if somebody was to take all five of them, they could unmerge the stone from Artemis's staff. They could also unmerge a stone from a person. But when doing this, there is a chance that instead of unmerging, one or more of the stones may merge to that person or item instead. You're, they're messing with really powerful stuff here. And for D&D stats, there was a 10% chance that one other stone may merge to the item, and there was a 1% chance uh, that all five or, or more of the stones you're holding would merge to that item as well. Um, so that, you know, from the Dungeon Dragons spec side, they knew that. But it gave them a way, okay, if something happens and we need to get her, her stone off her staff, or we do need to merge with the stone for whatever reason, we have enough stones, we could unmerge it again. We're not stuck in a weird battle like they had to do to save Michael from the stone that he had. Um, magic beyond what anyone knew, she only knows because the stone herself told her. They then asked a very good question. We've been told that there's another stone and that this stone is still out there we have to find. Do you know where it is? We were told Dragonaria, but we've never heard of that. And Damia smiles and says, Yes, you must seek out Dragonaria, but it will lead you to the stone. Stone's not there, but yes, seeking out Dragonaria will lead you to the stone that you're seeking for. And that is the final stone, and that stone is the Eternity Stone. It's the stone that really... All the stones are equal in power, and I need to stress that. Um, not one stone is more powerful than the other. It could seem that way based on how they're used, um, but if used correctly, the fire stone could be just as powerful as the death stone. It's just how you use it, what you merge it with, and how much control you have. So, um, and then merging stones, horrendous amount of power. We said, yes, that is, she goes, I cannot tell you where that is. That's knowledge that I do not have. But I can tell you, yes, that is where you must seek to find the final stone. And they're like, okay, well, what do we do now? I mean, how do we get out of this? And she goes, you have but to ask it. Will it? You must want to leave. You haven't wanted to leave to this point. You wanted to continue. You wanted to find the stone. and no time did you try. But if you will it, the stone will set you free. And they thank her for the information. And they're like, well, that's great. That's all. We appreciate that. Thank you very much. Uh, I guess we'll do that. And, you know, classic thing. Took each other's hands and 
began to will themselves out in their head, and she held their hands as well. And everything around them began to fade to darkness. And then they felt different. The sweet smell of the air was gone. Now it was replaced with an older kind of musky smell. And they're in complete darkness. Mercy, the one who's not. Everybody else, their infravision is not working very well. But Mercy's tiara lets her see, very quickly can see that they're inside of a cavern. Not a large room, um, but such. And she relays this to them. They light a torch up. They see that they're in a, a small cavern, empty. Behind them, a wooden door. Looks much like the door they came through to begin with. And across from the door, on the ground, they see, wrapped in old, tattered clothing, the thin bones of a small creature. Stepping closer toward it, they see the, the hand sitting there, and sitting in the hand is the space gem. That's the... Damia went inside and never came back out. They take the stone, and they now have all seven. Now all they need is the final gem that they originally didn't know existed, the Eternity Stone. But to find it, they have to seek out something called Dragonaria. Our heroes then walk out the door, walk out of this cavern. After they open the door, there's actually a small set of stairs. It's a little short for Darsh, but he, he manages to get up there, and at the top is another door that matches it. When they walk outside, they walk back out into the room of the Oracle, Damia's granddaughter, technically, their mother, daughter, I believe it was, daughter, who's sitting there smiling. She, she says, you found it. And thank you so much for setting her free. She's been tied to that, to that room and to that stone until you came, and it's been far too long. And I thank you for completing that which was most important to her. And they're like, well, I mean took a while. We appreciate it. And she smiles and she says, you've been in there an hour. And they're like, excuse me? Because it was but 60 moments ago that you walked through that door and left this room. So I thank you for returning. Before they go, she feeds them a nice meal. Um, she says that she knows nothing of Dragonary. It's not a word she's ever heard before this moment. Knows nothing about it. The only thing she knows is how Damia came across the stone. She told her the story once when she was younger. Said that she had been out traveling back in the times were dangerous and she was being very careful, but they were her and uh, another a couple members of the tribe or, or, the, or the group were traveling out looking for something, whatever the case may be, hunting. And they were traveling and they came across a gorge and they went down into the gorge chasing after some type of animal that they were trying to hunt at the time, maybe for food or for skins, whatever. And down there, they found what appeared to be a human, a humanoid. Um, they came across a person who had, it appeared, been trying to scale the gorge above and had fallen and was very seriously injured. Um, normally, they're very cautious, but seeing the damage done to this person, they knew he was no threat, and they came up to him and to see what was going on, and 
see what happened. And the figure was humanoid, although it, it had no hair. He was completely bald, no eyebrows or anything. And his skin had a bit of a golden tinge to it. Uh, not overly, but almost like you say a, a good bronzing. You know, like a, you know, very, maybe a, a, a tan, one of the ones that looks very metallic. A spray tan. But it, it, that was his skin tone. And he was dressed in robes very monk-like in nature. And he smiles and he said, I knew you'd come. And he's speaking directly to Damia. And Damia says, do you know me, friend? Can we help you? None of them are healers. All they can do is try to make him comfortable. Weakly, he moves his hand into his into a pouch hanging around his neck and he holds it out to her and she takes it and she looks inside and as soon as she looks inside being the wise woman of the, the oracle of the clan she's given a vision and she sees that this is a stone of great power that is being entrusted to her and that this figure was seeking her out knowing that it had to come to her and giving her a vision that one day others would come for that and the importance of her role in that and the secret of the stone and all that kind of stuff. All that flashed through her instantaneously. And when she comes out of the vision, she's laying on the ground, and the other short elf folks are, are kind of side, like, are you okay? And she's like, yeah, and she sits up, and she looks, and, and the figure had passed away. So she buries him. You know, they bury them. You know, he's, they're not rude. They put him in the ground, cover him in stones. And she, from that moment on, had that stone and been guarding it ever since, knowing that a time would come. And then one day she knew it was her time to move inside the stone. She was coming close to the end of her life. She went into that room and gave instructions to the daughter or granddaughter. That's kind of what happened with the stone. Um, that's how she came across it. The strange monk was delivering it to her. After they eat, and they hear this little bit of information and what's going on. You know, it's, it's important stuff. It was building up more of the story. Because they asked, how did she get it? Um, they didn't ask her, but they were kicking themselves later. How, did, how We should have asked. Luckily, I'd, I'd already had it set where she was going to tell them afterwards. But they're like, oh, man, we didn't ask how, where the stone came from. Maybe she knew more. Um, but it was, it, was a, it was an interesting situation. The race itself um, isn't a race that's in normal Dungeons & Dragons. It's something that I custom created for my world uh, based on a couple of different races I came across um, in different fantasy genres I wanted to have my race there are different races that are going to pop up in merged worlds from time to time uh, creatures and things that are clearly not Dungeons and Dragons they're things I've created myself well a lot of the rules and the basic existence of a lot of this is based on Dungeons and Dragons as we move more and more into the story you're going to see more and more of my own custom made creatures, beings, deities races and such as we move forward because I'm building out this world even more as we as we go on. So that being said, now that that was done, their time here is finished, and they know that they must return to Paxawal so that they can seek out the final stone. And instead of flying back through the gate and everything, they have their rings of central teleportation, and it's just the four of them. So they bid goodbye to the oracle and they use their rings to teleport back to their home in Paxawal. Because at this point, up until now, there has not been any range requirements that that could travel them to. So far it's a big world, but everywhere they've gone, they're able to teleport back. Ah, got a wild mustache here, tickling my nose. (laughs) So, um, they do just that. Teleport back to Paxawal. Um, They haven't been gone super, super long, but, you know, they did travel to the 
Valley of Sacrifice, and just still several weeks. This is actually one of their shorter jaunts, if you will. Uh, felt much longer to them, of course, with the time that they spent inside the Space Dome. At this point, they determined that they have seven stones. One of them is in Artemis' staff that leaves them with six. Uh, both Darsh, Mercy, Artemis, and Dandy, they all carry one or two of the stones at any given time when they're, when they're out and adventuring. They don't leave them at the house. You know, even though Danny's got their little teleport room in the basement and their treasure room, if we all trapped out the wazoo, they don't want to leave these here and lose them again. So when they're traveling, they keep them, but they also don't keep them um, all on one person. They're either in the chest of holding or if for some reason they're not, it doesn't feel like they're safe in the chest of holding or they're splitting up, they'll break up who has the gems. Because, uh, of course, there's the concern that while they've never really been warned of it, they had the natural fear that if somebody was carrying more than a certain amount of gems, would there be the fear that, because they're slightly intelligent, would they kind of take over them and make them merge or be taken over by the stones? Um, I never said that they would or they wouldn't, so these are precautions that they took themselves. Oh, mustache hair. Um, but that was something they did have them broken up over them. The only one that was ever really visible from time to time was the the life stone on Artemis' staff, but um, she had taken blue ribbon and tied it around that and such, which is not blue being the color of the cleric that she was and such, um, matching her robes and such. It, it looked very decorative on the staff, but it was meant more to hide it from prying eyes unless they needed to. None of the others were merged at this point. Um, I did want to mention again, because uh, someone did ask, the silver streak in Artemis's hair that was caused from when she had merged with the stone, that's still there. And it's growing from the roots. At no time does that go away. It's, it's, at this point, permanent in her hair. So wanted to throw that out there. Someone had asked me that in a direct message earlier, and I did want to address that now that I've remembered that I was asked it. So. <laughs> okay. So back in Paxiwal. Here they are. Same basic things. When they arrive, it's beginning early evening. And they're like, okay, we're home. Of course, they always check the house. No one set off any of the traps. Everything is fine. Uh, Darsh goes next door to tell Molly that they're back. Maybe buy a couple pies. Maybe eat a whole pie and then bring the rest back. Darsh does his thing. You go tell him back. Well, the others check the house, make sure everything's okay, and settle down, put away the whatever you know, loot they have, lock it in their treasure room, whatever the case is. They prep down. They decide that they're going to rest for the evening and that the next day they're going to go to the temple in the Wizard's Tower and explain what they found so far. Hey, we've got seven of the eight. Now we have to find this dragon area place. Once we find that, we'll hopefully have them all. We can move forward. So they spend the night. No incidents throughout the night. Everyone's nice and enjoys sleeping in their bed. Uh, beds are very good quality beds. Uh, Darsh's is custom made, of course, because Darsh's a big boy. And uh, he broke the first bed he had. I, that actually did happen, even though I never mentioned it. At one point, he, he sat down in his bed and it broke. Uh, I made him roll for that. That was funny. Uh, but they had a custom bed made, and it's much, much more sturdy. Uh, so they like their little home. It's a nice little home. They, they really feel... At this point, much like a family, they have very brother-sister feelings towards each other, um, and they become very, very close. But in the back of their mind, they all still have that same thought. One day, hopefully, I'll get to go home and see everybody. Back to where I was from. But at this time, they all have some of those thoughts. It's like, but they're going to do the same thing. They're going to go to their homes. Will I ever get to see them again? And it makes them a little sad, because they've grown very fond of each other. The next morning... They do their basic stuff, eat breakfast, 
you know, uh, Molly has delivered them some basic supplies that morning, as she normally does. She'll show up and say, here's some, I went and got you some milk and eggs and such. At the time, um, they basically are paying Molly to look after the house, um, and she keeps things okay, comes in, dusts, sweeps. She knows what areas of the house she's not to go to for her own safety. She, they made it quite clear there are traps in these areas. If you go in here, you'll be injured. But she makes sure that everything is okay, it gets dusted out. Sometimes they're gone for weeks, if not months, on end. Um, and then when they do return, a lot of times she'll go get basic foods from the market because she knows there's no food in there really that's edible and get them started till they can buy their own supplies and such. So that morning she shows up again with some eggs and milk and such and she hops in the kitchen and, and is chatting along and, and her and uh, Dandy are cooking up stuff and Darsh and Mercy Arm are sitting at the table chatting. Darsh just drooling, smelling the eggs. <laughs> and they have a good breakfast together. Molly explains there hasn't been any real exciting news nothing big has happened while they were gone it's actually been one of the most peaceful times in the last several years there's no rumblings of war from one direction or fear of the undead from another um, everything is kind of calmed down and and the city really feels like it's prospering um, Thorman and um, Paxwall and Arduel the three cities that are along that coast Arduel being one of the first cities they went to where they met Prince now King Christopher um, Thorman's where they went and helped with the undead. Paxiwal's where they are now. These three are all on the coast. Uh, while they've been gone, an official uh, treaty and partnership has been signed. The three kingdoms are now officially allied. Um, and basically, at this point, it's, it's called... The, they, they're known as the Southern Kingdoms because there's just an ocean beneath them there. You know, there's, there's nothing past that. It's just deep other than Kronayar, which is in there. And the talks with Kronayar... At this point, have they, Darshan, they find out, are moving forward as, forward as well. And it is, the, it is believed that it is the intention of the Emperor to ally as part of this. Which, of course, is causing some issues in the Kingdom of Kronar, because as we know, not all Minotaurs are happy with that. Uh, majority see it as a boon. Uh, some of the more hardcore, I guess you call loyalist, the we're Minotaurs, we should rule the world through dominating, and should, everyone should be enslaved by us, and so on. There's still those type of factions within that, because if you remember, Kronauer is three islands of Minotaurs, and all of those islands are from different worlds. And for some reason, those islands ended up next to each other. Now, I want to point out something real quick. Many times do I say things like that. Hey, three Minotaur islands of all the worlds that pulled out of the universe, crammed them all together, three mentor islands ended up right next to each other. That seems awfully coincidental. Is that potentially bad writing? I want you to understand it's supposed to be coincidental. The people in the world, like Darsh and the people in Paxawal, everyone knows what's going on, they think that's coincidental as well. And I want to point that out. It's not escaped in the world. That's important. The fact that some of these things that are happening, like the fact that it grabbed a piece of the world where all of the stones were and yanked them together of all the different things it could have grabbed, why did those all get pulled in? Why did the Minotaurs end up next to each other? Why did this happen? These things, a lot of people, the, the, the those who are seeking out knowledge, the ones who are trying to figure out how this happened, the average farmer who's just trying to rebuild their lives doesn't care, but those who are seeking out how this happened or are world-weary, they see the coincidentalness of this as well. They see that this does not seem completely random. And so that is something that is part of the story itself, that these things are coincidental. It's supposed to be that way, and more and more do these coincidences pop up that the characters are drawing attention to it as well. They're noticing, hey, that's awfully coincidental. Why isn't one of these 
Minotaur Islands way over there in that section of the world where we traveled hundreds of miles away through a realm gate. Why did these three end up right next to each other? These are things that they're looking into as well, as are the wizards and the clerics that are working with researching as part of their goals. So I did want to address that. Yes, it's coincidental, but it's also coincidental to them. They're aware of that coincidence, and that is part of the story itself. And will very likely be more important later, obviously. I wouldn't be talking about it. <laughs> so, after eating their hearty breakfast, and Darsh cleans out a dozen eggs himself, by this point, uh, Molly is aware of how much food she needs to bring for a good breakfast, um, they decide, okay, let's go ahead and let's go to the temple first. Then we'll break off and we'll go talk to the mages and tell them what we found. Because they're going to love the knowledge of the center and the Visani stones. That information the clerics will like, but the mages are going to eat that up. Because now they're going to be like, does that place still exist? Did part of that end up on this one? That's going to be serious business for them. Clerics too, but the mages are definitely going to seek it out more. This is a place of knowledge. So they go to the clerics first. And as normal, they show up. They're recognized. They're welcomed by people. And they're escorted to that waiting room, you know. Sister Mara, Brother Bart, these are very important people. They be teaching morning prayers, they have classes, they may be dealing with other things. So they usually end up sitting here for sometimes 30 minutes to an hour while they're waiting on their chance to see them. They're always given food and drinks, There's always cheese and grapes and things and wine or water, whatever you want. Um, so they're, you know, it's comfortable, they sit in there and they chat and they talk and sometimes other people are there, um, as is this time. And when they arrive, Sitting in the room, as has happened before, is Zach and Twill. Now, if you remember Zach and Twill, who, for the record, Twill's last name is Featherbottom. I uh, forgot about that and came across it in my notes. Uh, Zach's last name I don't have listed, but it's Zach and Twill Featherbottom. Zach is the elf and Twill is the kender, um, who are known as map makers, who have been going around the New World creating maps and documenting where everything is and trying to make a, phys a representation of this new world. And they're known because their maps are so overwhelmingly accurate. Um, and so they're welcome to pretty much any kingdom you go to uh, in this area because they show up and like, hey, here's all the maps we made. Would you like them? And they give copies to whoever wants them. Uh, Twill will make copy after copy and, and provide them or their map makers will make a copy off of his. But they're welcome everywhere because they're just freely giving this knowledge to anyone that wants it. They, they're not asking for payment or anything. But again, Zach and Twill are there, and they chatting, and how are you men, so on and so forth. Pretty good. We just uh, just fully documented this area here. Um, we just brought some new maps in. Here, check these out. And they show some of the maps, and they're pretty cool. Dandy starts jotting some of them down herself. Dandy, uh, Kender being lovers of maps and things, that's something that they have a big fan of. She's drawn out her own representation, and her and Twill are kind of chatting at one end of the table. And... Zach is sitting at the end of the table, and Mercy's on kind of one side to, to him down a little bit, and Darsh is there, and then Artemis is kind of in the middle watching the Kender and then also listening to Zach, and they're talking. Zach, uh, kind of quiet as a, as a person, you know, always very friendly, but very intelligent-like. They're just kind of talking and such. And as they're sitting there, they're like, hey, these are people who've been all over the place. They have more maps and more traveling knowledge than almost anybody they've come across on this world. We should totally ask them if they know what we're looking for. And so Mercy says, because they, Zach and Tool don't know they're looking for stones specifically. 
They've never told them that part, but they know that they're out adventuring, looking for something, helping the temple. They're good people. Zack and Tool have heard of their adventures of helping fight the undead, so they know they're good people. So they're, 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 they mutual respect. And Mercy's like, may I ask you a question, Zack? He's like, of course, please. And she's like, I'd like to check. We are seeking out a place specifically. There's something that we're looking for, and it's a place no one seems to know where it is, and we thought with all of your travels, maybe you guys might have an idea or have heard of it through your travels. And Zach's like, oh, I'm definitely interested. We've traveled a lot, for sure. Um, what is it you seek? And she goes, um, it's a place called Dragon Area. And that's all she gets out. No one even saw him move. It was almost instantaneous. Mercy just felt her body slam against the wall. His grip around her neck, holding her against the wall. He's tall. He's a couple of feet, like six feet tall. Holding her off the ground. And everyone, in the moment, just startled. Because literally, he just comes out of his chair and hurls her against the wall and is holding her up by her throat. Darsh's first instinct is to step in. He hops out of his chair and reaches up and tries to grab Zack and pull him off of her, but immediately finds that he can't move the elf at all. With his strength, the elf isn't even noticing he's there until Zack turns and with his other hand grabs Darsh by the arm and Darsh just falls to his knees. The amount of pain going through his arm, like his arm is being crushed and ripped off. He can barely move. He's seeing stars. It hurts so bad. And through his teeth, all Zack says to Mercy is, where did you hear that word? She couldn't answer. She wants to. She's starting to black out. He's so tight around her throat, she can't breathe. She's trying to pull his hand off, and it's like holding on to stone. And then Twill is there. Quickly, but smoothly, comes rushing up and looking up at Zack. He goes, Zack. Zack. And Zack turns and looks at him and Twills goes, they don't know, Zack. Let her go. They don't know. And Zack, looking at him for a minute, turns back to Mercy and Mercy can see his eyes are glowing with like a red fire. But it calms down a little bit. Slowly he lets go and Mercy falls to her knees, gasping. He lets go of Darsh, who basically nurses his arm at that point, falls to the side himself. Zack puts his hand up on... or sorry, um, Twill puts his hand up on, on, on Zack's arm and goes, Take a breath, Zack. Take a breath. Zack nods and walks to the other side of the room, to the corner, just kind of standing in the corner, lost in his own thoughts. Occasionally looking, glancing over towards the companions with a real hatred look on his face. Dandy's just completely like, what the hell happened? Artemis and her, completely sorry, Artemis comes rushing over, of course, immediately looking at Darsh's nearly broken arm, putting heels on both him and on Mercy to help her. Mercy's fortunately not really a heel situation. There's definitely marks of a, of a hand, not just squeezing, but almost burned a little bit into her skin. And Artemis in anger said, what the hell was that? What was that for? And Twill looks at her and very calmly says, 
it is very important that none of you ever say that word again under any circumstances. Doing so will only invite your death. You cannot say that word. And Artemis is blown away. She's like, fine, we won't, but why? What is this? And Twill says, what you're speaking of, that which you just stated, is something very important. And he's like, you can see he's searching for words. He's very calm. He's searching for words. He goes, almost holy to a group of people. And only they should know that it even exists. No one should know that that word is even in existence. And you speaking it now invites a lot of questions about how. And so I think it's important if you tell us everything about how you found out that word. Zach at this point has come back and sat back at the table. Twill motions to everyone to come back to the table. And they're a little nervous at first, but slowly come back to the sit at the table. At this point, a couple guards have come in and Artemis waves them off because it's a bit of a commotion. She's like, no, we're fine, thank you. And guards leave. T Templars, if you will. And at this point, they feel, okay, well, the, they talked about it, the character, the players, and they're like, okay, we're going to tell them everything. And they basically tell them everything that's happened up until this point. All the information. The stones, Michael, the quest of the world, the brothers Firemoon, all that stuff. Tells them everything and that they're looking for this last stone and that the water told them that's what they were looking for. And that was confirmed again by the spirit of Damia inside the space stone. As the story has been going on, Zack seems to be calming down and turning back into a bit more of his normal self. He's still very quiet. He doesn't say anything, but he's just listening. Twill, even for a kender, is definitely being more attentive. And he's listening to everything that they're saying. With, It's almost like he's writing it down in his head. You can see him like making mental notes. Okay, and then what happened? He'll be like, okay, then what happened? Well, what happened with this? And he's asking specific questions as the story comes out. And finally, they catch up to the point where they are now. And goes, until we're in this room. And then and Darsh goes, and then this prick tried to kill us. <laughs> Darsh is not one to mince words. Mm. Zack stands up and immediately Darsh and Mercy's hands kind of go to their weapons real quick. Zack holds his hands up. He goes, peace. I apologize for my earlier outburst. Twillis said it's true. That word is not something anyone should know. I'm going to step out for a few moments. And while I'm gone, you're all going to stay in this room with Twill. You will not leave. I make myself clear, do I not? And as he's speaking, literally, they can feel his energy power washing over them. It's almost like pushing them back into their seats. And they're like, okay. Twill's like, it's okay, Zach. I'll stay here with them. It'll be okay. Zach nods and looks down and 
frumples Tool's hair a little bit. Tool gets a big smile and Zach walks out of the room. <clears throat> Tool asks a few <clears throat> excuse me. Tool asks a few more questions. Okay, what about this? You have the stones. May I see one? I don't wish to touch. I'd just like to see them. So I know what you're talking about. And they show them the stones, show them the chest of holding. You know, again, they they quite open about a lot of this. Because until this point, they've been pretty cool. But at this point, they're also concerned. Zach is standing on holy ground right now. Ground. He's inside a temple dedicated to, well, all gods are welcome to the good, good gods specifically. And nothing really stopped him from doing what he did. Which is something to be concerned about. Because now they have to wonder, are we on the wrong side of this conversation? For about 15 minutes, Zach comes back in. His face definitely seems calmer now. He seems like he kind of has a look of relief, if you will. And he walks back in, and, and Zach is, or Twill kind of looks up at him, you know, wondering, like, okay. And he kind of looks at the party a little bit nervously and looks back at Zach. And if she didn't know better, Dandy viewed that look as, okay, are you going to kill him or not? And Zach says, I have been advised not to harm you. The land that you spoke of is a place of holiness and great presence for the race of dragons. And it is a place that no one but dragon kin or the highest of their faithful should know exist. Only the majority of those who follow the Great Worm do not know of its existence, and those who do are high enough rank to know of its existence dare not speak of it, nor have ever been there. And when he says speaks of the faithful, and he talks of the Great Worm, he's referencing Protovarius, the god of dragons, who's known as the Great Worm, the first things of that nature. Um, but the, the Great Worm is his most common name. Worm being W-Y-R-M, which is a common term for dragons. In case you did not know that, I thought I'd fill that up. So the Great Worm has, of course, like any religion, there are clerics, humans, elves, whatever. There are people out there that, that worship him. But from what Zach is saying, even the majority of them don't know this place exists. Only the highest ranking of them do. And even then, None of them would ever see it. In fact, to be allowed to visit that location is basically the highest form of uh, gift or praise that could be given a cleric of Protovarius. To be allowed to step foot on that hallowed, uh, hallowed isle that the dragons consider holy ground, um, you would have to do some serious business um, as a cleric in the name of Protovarius to be granted that. And very often, sometimes that is where a very, very um, powerful or old cleric who's done a lot in the name of Protovarius may be allowed to go there to die or even be allowed to be buried there after they die. That is basically the, one of the greatest things that, other than the Great Worm speaking to you himself, being able to be buried or, or even to see Dragonaria uh, would be pretty much the highest achievement you could get. Now he doesn't, he tells them this without ever saying the name of the word, but he, he explains that. He says, I have been directed 
to bring you there. I want to be clear, I'm not happy about this. But when I spoke to him, he said that I am to take you there. He wishes to see you himself. What's to come of that conversation? I don't know. Normally, our laws are direct. I would kill you where you stand just for knowing that it exists. But in this situation, I am to take you there. And then he gets a little bit of a smile in the corner of his mouth. And he looks at Twill. He says, I am to take you as well. And Twill's face just falls apart. And he's, he's like, really? And he just starts crying. Like, he literally puts his head in his hands and just starts crying. And the friends are very shocked by this. They're not sure why. And Artemis reached out and put her hands on him and says, Are you okay? And he looks up and he's crying, but he's got a smile on his face and he nods. And he reaches into his shirt and unhooks it. And he pulls out, hanging from a thin chain, the holy medallion of a cleric of Protovarius. You see, Zack is a dragon. Twill is his best friend. And the reason they're able to make such awesome, accurate maps is it's easy to do from way up high. Which is one reason why it's easy for them to do maps of places that normally people couldn't get to. And they have been charged. They've taken it upon themselves to map this new world. And Zack and Twill, Twill has been a... Uh, cleric for a very long time. Now, I know I hadn't shown these before. I may have shown them in the past, but what I'm going to do is pop up on screen here. On the left is Zack, and on the right is Twill. These are the two actors that I used to reference these two characters. Um, the moment I created them, these are the two that came to my mind. For, I mean, let me phrase. As soon as I saw these pictures, they immediately filled what I had in my mind. Um, if you are listening to this uh, audio later on Spotify or on iTunes, uh, these pictures are also on my website, OnlyDraven.com, under the Characters tab. Um, I've added them on there, but uh, they'll be listed. These are Zach and Twill Featherbottom. And these are the two gentlemen that they've just been having this conversation with. And Zach has been commanded to bring them and Twill to Dragonaria by someone. They just said he, they didn't go any more information than that, and to be honest with you, they at this point don't want to ask. So I gave them the option. They said they didn't want to ask. They were going to take it on faith, and they agreed to go. Because to be honest with you, they didn't really feel like they had a lot of choice in that moment. For Twill to get to go, as we mentioned, this is this an insanely high honor. Um, and so it just broke him up. He just he never ever thought he'd get to go. Um, but a lot of a lot of clerical types, I'm going to go ahead and minimize these, a lot of clerical types um, aren't as openly active as, say, Tavian or the God of Light. Who are, We walk around in our robes, and we're clerics, and you see our holy symbol all the time. I see you across the room, I know you're a holy cleric. There are some clerics that sometimes work in the shadows, both good and bad. Some that keep the fact that they're a cleric hidden for different reasons. And you, when it comes to Protovarius, it's a mix. There'll occasionally be a cleric of Protovarius walking around with a symbol and robes, walking around a temple like anywhere else, and sometimes they aren't. They're not very commonly seen. Um, but like any cleric, they are a neutral cleric. The Protovarius is a neutral god. Uh, so 
good dragons, evil dragons, all fun. And when it comes to the actions of their clerics, as long as it is moving towards the goals of Protovarius or dragons and such, good or bad, there are going to be clerics that follow both. So there's going to be clerics that follow evil dragons, some clerics that follow good dragons. And it's important to stress that. So while it's a neutral god, and usually clerics can fall into neutral, they may serve good, neutral, or evil dragons. So you come across an evil green dragon in the woods, he may have a cleric of Protovarius. You find a gold dragon of goodness on a mountain, he may have some clerics of Protovarius working with him as well. So um, they're not as numerous of many as many of them, but they can be of any race. That's one thing. Anything can worship dragons. Um, but you not not as many people are taken into that, I guess you should say. Not as many people are accepted into their ranks. Um, basically, a dragon has to bring you into the ranks at that point, and that doesn't happen very often, you can imagine. So I know I went into a lot of information there, but it can be important later, but I wanted to bring that up. <clears throat> this episode this week is going to go a little bit longer than normal, because now we're getting to something important. <clears throat> 